Hello. The COP27 climate conference took place last month in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Now that the dust is settled, we can ask whether the so-called African COP lived up to expectations. And what are the COP's implications for the energy transition journeys of countries rich in oil, gas, and minerals in Africa, but also more broadly across the global south? These are some of the issues we'll dive into in today's episode of The Resource Remix, a podcast from the Natural Resource Governance Institute, or NRGI. In this series, we bring listeners dynamic perspectives on the cutting-edge issues affecting countries rich in commodities, specifically in the context of the global transition away from fossil fuels. I'm Antonio Hill, an Energy Transition Advisor at NRGI, and today I'll be speaking to you from Boston, and I'm joined by my colleague Nafi Chenri, and RGI's Interim Africa Director, who's in Accra, Ghana. And also with us is Isabel Cavillier, a climate expert, ex-negotiator for Colombia with many hats, whose newest initiative, Mundo Común, aims to develop a system of care in the face of the climate and ecological crisis. She's calling in from Bogota. Welcome, Nafi and Isabel, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Antonio. Thank you, Antonio. Good morning and good afternoon. So the first question we'll start with today is about leadership. Um, the overall COP27 result, of course, does not inspire confidence that world leaders and their governments are responding effectively to the climate emergency. A lack of political will or ambition are often cited as contributing factors. Jean-Vivre Gunther at End Climate Silence put a great tweet out last week that I want to share. She said, I hate the word ambition in climate discourse. I'm plummeting to earth, but I have the ambition to pull my parachute's cord. Or my house is burning down, but I lack the ambition to call the fire department. Phasing out fossil fuels is not overachievement, but survival. Clearly, the climate emergency is an existential threat for all of us. But what is the right starting point for leadership and ambition in connection with the energy transition? In other words, is climate action and that frame of, of responding to climate change necessary in resource-rich countries in the global south? Or are there other more compelling reasons to pursue energy transitions in these countries that leaders should really be running with in the first instance? Um, so that is a question I'd really be keen to get your feedback on both of you from, from your perspectives and from your respective regions. Um, so let's start with that. Is climate change the, the right starting point for moving countries along the energy transition past successfully. Isabel, why don't we start with you? Um, I think we place way too high expectations on what COPs should achieve and what their role is. Um, my takeaway is that this so-called Africa COP, but more accurately, a COP held in Africa with a presidency held by an African country, um, actually did things that were quite unimaginable just a couple of years ago. It did, countries did agree to a new fund for loss and damage. Of course, it remains to be seen that this fund will be actually funded and that money will flow to countries that are facing loss and damage. And that is the challenge now after COP27. But actually having agreed to that is pretty big. When you have been into those negotiating rooms, uh, like when you and I met, Antonio, several years ago, um, you realize how tough it is to actually get to these things um, in multilateral settings. So that's pretty big. And I, I wouldn't take it as a given. Uh, give, given the current geopolitics, 
given the huge tensions that we see currently, for example, to name just two, you know, minor countries, the US and China, the biggest emitters in the world, that they actually agreed to reinstall cooperation on climate, that their climate teams could meet again after the levels of tension that they've been through is not irrelevant and it isn't to be taken as a given. So I think we need to remind ourselves that yes, there's a lot that we can still aim for. There's a lot that we can be disillusioned about. There's a lot of political will lacking around many things, including <coughs> fossil fuels out. But there are other things that are also real, that also happen, and that should be also remembered. And, and, and actually, the role that developing countries played in achieving that is pretty significant and shouldn't be underestimated. Um, on your question, Antonio, I think the climate climate rationale is one of many arguments on, on which governments in resource-rich countries in the South, and I don't even really like the, the expression global South, right? I think the world really is a continuum of development, that nobody is a developed country, nobody has really achieved sustainable development, and some countries are richer in some resources, other countries are richer in other resources, and we really need to aim to, first of all, take perspective in that continuum and stop polarizing ourselves, even talking about North and South. But anyway, I my, my sensation is that for resource-rich countries, i.e., I mean, all countries are resource-rich in many different ways, but resource, i.e., fossil fuel resource-rich countries um, that are aiming to, to, to do this transition, and one of them is my own country, Colombia, but others in Africa and across the world are aiming at, at doing this transition, uh, for them, climate is one of the reasons, and, and, and maybe not even the first reason. I, I see the politics are very complicated in countries where energy scarcity is a reality, and Colombia isn't even such a scarce energy scarce country, but there are many, many arguments that are very strong in our political debate related to our energy security in becoming, for example, dependent on imports of fossils from other countries in the very near term if we don't you know, continue to, for example, explore for new gas reserves. And it's a very real debate. It's a very real and actually legitimate argument. And this is Colombia, a country that has a close to 70% hydro and, and power generation, let alone countries, for example, like, you know, countries like Nigeria or like other countries in Africa or even in Latin America, where this is not the case, Latin America is kind of different, but where take take Mexico or take Argentina, take Chile, right? These countries don't have the, the, the luxury of having a very clean power matrix. And, you know, some of them have gone through the the situation of having to import fossil fuels for their energy security. So for me, the main reason can include climate, but it's not just climate. It's we need to do this transition in order to be both energy independent, energy rich, and economically diverse, so that we don't depend on a single resource for our economy to be stable and to be able to thrive. That's probably the main angle through which we will be able to politically secure an energy transition that is organized and that isn't polarizing inside our countries. Because currently, if we are honest, the climate lens is very important 
but it ends up being polarizing and that's not good for the climate community or the or for the climate debate or for the climate argument in fact it it it, it demonizes the climate argument on one side and it makes it less less compelling so i think yeah. it's important to have that combination yeah um, so leaving aside what should be for a moment, I know, Nafi, you've actually been at the table, you've been involved, you've been observing conversations about energy transition, both in Ghana, Nigeria, and elsewhere across West Africa specifically. What do you see in terms of how this issue is framed and, and how much do uh, political leaders actually reference the climate uh, emergency in the context of conversations about energy transition? Thanks very much, Antonio. I think that, um, uh, first of all, I agree with um, Isabel on all the issues that she's raised, right? That there are other reasons for the transition beyond just the climate argument. Um, and, and that's really the case in countries like Ghana, where uh, I am from, that we cannot use the climate argument to be the only reason why we should transition. Um, um, governments, particularly in Ghana, uh, on the continent where I come from, make reference to the huge poverty gap and the huge um, energy security issue. We need energy to power development in Africa. And they need to have a conversation around how Africa is going to develop its economies and develop its people beyond the climate argument, especially where Africa is noted to just emitting very little when it comes to um, polluting the world, right? And so the argument about climate um, being the reason why we should transition, it's really not, um, it's, it's really not actually uh, acceptable for governments in, in my country, Ghana and other places on the continent, because look, there are real issues that need to be addressed, right? So I talked about the issue of energy security and the issue of high poverty in, in, in most of these countries that really require energy to power its, its development and its economy. And so we really need to have, but, but uh, that said, I think that it beholds on, on, on governments, uh, like governments in my own country, to come up with the real data, right? And the real information that supports their argument beyond saying what is already known. What different arguments can we make beyond what is already known about? Um, you know, the numbers that is continuously being churned out about the number of people living in poverty and the number of people who do not have access to clean cooking systems, right? What else, what numbers, what data again can we um, churn out to make a very strong, compelling argument for what is already known? And I think this is where leadership when you when you started your framing by talking about leadership this is where leadership is really important right um africa needs to invest in the right research and data right to make a compelling argument at uh, places like pop right in places where uh, decisions are made 
we really need to make a lot of investments in, in the research and in data analysis and engagement with the right stakeholders to make sure that there is a defining agenda for Africa that can set it on the pathway to transition that supports the growth of um, our economies, right? Um, and, yeah. and that also does not jeopardize uh, the environment and mother earth. I think so. The the climate uh, rationale, of course, you say is it's not necessary. It's 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 also not possible. I mean, even if Ghana and every other African country were to cut fossil fuel production and consumption tomorrow, we would still be faced with a climate emergency because the biggest polluters um, sit elsewhere, isn't it? Um, but I mean. What is happening, of course, is the energy transition. Um, however disjointed and even if the pace is too slow, the, the trend is very, very clear. I mean, already in 2015, when the Paris Agreement was signed, renewable energy broke through to become more than half of energy technology capacity additions globally. Um, and last year in 2021, that figure was 84%, according to Bloomberg New Energy Finance. And gas and oil combined were only 15%. So the energy transition is happening. And however governments respond, they're taking a position that will affect their country's prospects in the course of a complex energy transition now unfolding. So what does leadership mean and require in the context of, of that current energy transition? And how does it relate to leadership in the COP setting? Nafi, you touched on the need for research and data and for uh, governments to really root their positions uh, effectively in a strong evidence base. Um, but how can governments better prepare to advance their energy transition goals in, in the COP setting? I might flip it back to you, um, Isabel, given that Colombia has, has, is now talking, the, the government of Gustavo Petro is talking a big game on energy transition. Um, they went to COP uh, with that background. Um, what do, how do you think the leadership on energy transition translates to leadership in the COP setting? Yes, the climate rationale is, as you say, not possible because even if these countries were to be completely off from fossil fuels, we will continue to have a problem. While that is true, I think that is a very uh, double-edged argument that is complex to use because what is also true is that every single country will need to phase out, even those countries that are not so significantly contributing. And that is the, the that, that is the dilemma, right? That is the classically understood as what the are the risks? Thing. What are the risks of not phasing out soon enough? I mean, is this exactly, being exactly. stuck that, with that, legacy technology or what's the, right, what's that, the catch? That's where I was going. Then the argument is it's a competitiveness issue. Yes, the transition is ongoing. And if you don't hop on the bus, you're going to be left out and you're going to be left out with old paradigms, old infrastructure probably um, archaic economics that are not necessarily going to take you to a place of prosperity and of clean, you know, clean societies, clean air, clean water, clean, you know, clean lives in general. So well-being will depend on it of, of your citizens, right? And so it's I true. think that's a better framing than just saying, oh, because we contribute so little, it doesn't really matter. So let's keep on doing it. So just before we turn to that, I, I do want to um touch on this fossil fuel phase out uh, conversation um, that arose at COP27. And I think, you know, going back to what you said, Isabel, about how we should calibrate our assessment of progress at, 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 at COPs, this I think is, is a very significant one because again, 
even though the decision text coming out of COP27 didn't get much farther than COP26 and its reference to a phase down of coal and um, a phase out of some fossil fuel subsidies, um, the whole conversation was transformed by a proposal that was actually kicked off by India and then joined by a high ambition coalition that included um, surprisingly in some cases, countries such as the US and Canada, and for other reasons, countries such as Colombia, Chile, um, the Pacific Islands. Um, but of course, this was uh, not something that was joined by African oil and gas producers. Um, together with China, they were somewhat silent on the, uh, on the, the call despite having early on kind of pushed quite hard for a specific reference to gas as a transition fuel in the, in the, in the same context of, of, a, of a cover decision at COP27. Um, so I wanna dig into understanding a bit why that's the case. Um, and I might start with you, Nafi. Um, why is it that we see this hesitancy from uh, producers in Africa and elsewhere to embrace a call for a global fossil fuel phase out? Like, I think there are a number of issues and it all draws from the conversation that we, we, we earlier, we started with and about what's the context in, in Africa. And I think that a lot of um, governments in Africa are basing their argument on the context in Africa. That um, uh, many of these countries actually rely on fossil fuel revenues to power their economy. Right, and so phasing out now without a clear plan, right, that supports the transition process is actually going to jeopardize a developmental process in these countries. And so for them, while countries like Ghana and Nigeria perhaps have developed a framework for transition, which is looking at uh, 2060 and 2070, for example, it still needs to be done in a way that supports, you know, that is, that is not rapid, but that is in a way that supports uh, the economy and that provides uh, avenues for them to invest in, for example, renewable along uh, the way. So um, a, fast, a fast transition will be very dear on the economies and development of Africa. And which for me, I think is a reason why countries like Africa did not support the phase out now. Really about um, um, countries in the global north, so developed countries that have already developed their economies to begin to phase out now and fast because they have actually the capacity and the resources to diversify. Isabel talked about the issue of diversification should be part of the conversation. Now, Africa, needs to be supported to be able to diversify, right? But Africa itself needs to actually understand its context, right? Do a lot of analysis, right? prioritize where it wants to put its limited money to support the transition process before you can think about getting any external support to help you to transition. There are things that we need to do as Africans to be able to support our transition process. Transition now, now like other countries in, in developed countries will be very devastating for our economies and for our people. And it's very clear from the data that is already available. But we need to have a plan. 
that supports us to do over time. But that also supports us to invest in other areas like renewable, having analysis. Look, um, uh, we talk about the sun in, in Africa, right? But it, it's not just about the sun. There are other, you know, other uh, resources that Africa can tap into. We have wind. Obviously, I mean, UK has more wind than, uh, than, uh, than uh, what we generate in Ghana or in Africa. But how are we, you know, how are we assessing what we have? How are we developing plans around how we are going to invest into all these areas? And this is something that Africa itself has to do, right? Mm -hmm before any support can come in. And so I think that um, African countries not embracing their call, perhaps it's about not, not preparing in a way that can provide the clear pathway, right? To, to support a transition here and now, you know, so they are looking at what's going to happen to our economies, right? Hoping that perhaps something more instructive or, or bold from the COP to support Africa's economy would have been a wish that most African countries um, were expecting from COP. That didn't happen. And so it wasn't possible for them to support that uh, uh, a phase out, a phase out from fossil fuel now, because you know it has to be gradual. It has to be gradual. While it is important that we so, all face out, all countries face out, it has to be gradual for countries like Africa. This is a point that Petro has also stressed in Colombia that a lot of people, you know, as soon as you talk about transition, people immediately latch on to the timing question. You know, they assume that this is now. And, and you know, he has gone to great lengths to stress uh, that this is a gradual process. So we're, we're talking about, I mean, it has to happen quickly. Um, but I think critically, it has to happen in a way that's fair. Um, so this is fundamentally about equity. The speed of the transition has to be different. And however we we group the countries, whether they're whether we call about developing or developed or lower income, higher income, um, I agree. North South doesn't make much sense anymore. Um, but Ghana's special envoy to the Climate Vulnerable Forum, Henry Kokufu, was, was asked uh, whether a fossil fuel phase out is needed. And he shot back for developed or developing countries, his framing. Um, and so, but I think it's, he's touching on the same issue, right? I mean, this is who and when is absolutely critical to yeah. this question. And I don't think the conversation at COP27 got to this point. Um, but that is really the, the, the nut of the issue here, is it, isn't it? I think I, I'm telling you, I think the issue of timing is critical, right? We need to phase out, right? And we need to phase out of fossil fuel. We need to save Mother Earth, right? We need to ensure that we have a clean and healthy uh, world for everyone to live in. But there are critical issues. Um, countries are at different stages. And I think that you 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 said it from you know, you make a, a, a reference to what I said. The issue of timing is, is important. The issue of capacity is important, right? That countries are at different levels and we need to recognize that. And while I agree with Isabel that we should stop using global north and global south, but we can't take away the fact that uh, wealthier countries are at a, a far way, way ahead of uh, countries in Africa. And, and because that they are the highest polluters, they need to invest in supporting the rest of the world that are not at the same level as them to go through the transition process. 
going through the um, supporting them also requires that supporting their economies for sustainable development, supporting them to invest into other renewable uh, um, uh, interventions as well, as well as going through the, um, um, the transition process. That is very important. Capacity timing is key here for Africans. And you have to recognize the context in which we are talking about in Africa. It's very important, even within Africa, right? Even yeah. within Africa, we have differences. Nafi's totally right. And we should never forget that anything we do needs to be profoundly situated and with complete awareness of context, right? When we say there's no difference between North and South, it's not true. That doesn't mean that there, when I say the North-South divides are not relevant anymore, it's not because the difference doesn't exist. It's because there is a continuum of difference, right? But every single place is its own. It has its own characteristics and we need to really be aware of, of that and of the fact that the transition, as Nafi was saying, needs to be gradual and the graduality of it will be different to, for every country, almost for every local municipality, right? Even within our countries, there's huge difference. But internationally, do, do you think it's possible to get to a place where countries yes, so, could yeah, agree absolutely. on, well, I was on gonna go how there. different? Yes, I was going to go there. It's not the first time that that is acknowledged. The Paris Agreement actually acknowledges it. And so it's not new. I think we are getting there. And it's it's a question almost of like being good at playing that sort of um, geeky game of figuring out what's the right reference to recognize that, yes, everybody needs to phase out at some point, but there will be differences. So the classic principle common but differentiated responsibilities and respective capabilities in light of national circumstances is the crystallization of that of that precise idea and it's there and it's agreed and it's it's in Paris and so there's no reason why we should think that that's not even already recognized it's a question of bringing it back to light and bringing it together with the idea that yes everybody needs a gradual transition according to their national circumstances but before we leave i want to let you with a, a seed about the transition antonio and nafi and, and to our audience and it is that we tend to think that this transition in terms of the energy sector because there are many sectors that need to transition but let me just focus on the energy conversation because that's what we're talking about today we tend to believe that the transition is all about the source of the energy is all about whether it's coal or it's gas or it's wind or it's sun or it's oil or it's whatever it is the source and my sensation and this is food for thought is that we are overly focusing on the source and we are forgetting that actually probably the transition is i'm going to even say probably mainly about the use of the energy there is no single source of energy that is completely fully entirely clean because there are no human actions in earth that are devoided of consequences for our ecosystems sun solar energy solar panels they have their problems wind turbines they have their problem everything has their own consequence right and we tend to forget that no single source is perfect and that we don't think enough about the use we are definitely missing the biggest part of the equation and it is that we are using our energy in so many depleting ways we are wasting our energy even our 
physical, personal energy in so many extractive and depleting ways that even if we were 100% renewable, we would be depleting our earth. So let's think about the use, about how we can remember that the use of energy can be a devotional and sacred exercise that is not wasteful, right? And that's something that needs to be incorporated in the discourse about the transition as soon as we can. And it's not just about energy efficiency. It's not just about using a little bit less energy. It's about how we are putting our energy into action in the world as we inhabit it. Very wise words indeed. I, it's clear that the energy transition, I mean, we could go on and on and, and should reconvene for a, a future resource remix to talk about some of these other avenues. Um, it's clear the challenges that uh, it raises domestically in all countries. Um, but just to tie all this back to the COP uh, yet again, and, and, and to latch on to your reference to the loss and damage outcome at COP27, Isa, you well know that that resulted from significant coordination across several negotiating groups over many, many years. Does that experience provide useful lessons for future coordination across oil and gas producers, lower income oil and gas producers, let's say, navigating the energy transition in the context of this whole fossil phase out call? Um, so final words from each of you on that before we wrap today. Maybe start with you, Nafi. Antonio, yes. I think, um, as I, I said earlier on, COP27 was my first COP, right? And, and so where I leave the experience to see what happens and, 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 and all the uh, activities on, on the ground at the COP. I think, I think that the same level of negotiation, coordination is required going forward. But it is required pre-COP, right? It is not on the grounds of COP that you start brainstorming and reflecting on what agenda to put forward. And for me, I think that was one of my disappointments and what I saw lacking amongst the uh, African the spaces, the African spaces that I found myself right and also hearing from from my government i would have expected because as you rightly said getting to the point of making a statement about loss and damage didn't start at cop 27 right it started a long time ago so for any agenda to fly particularly in support of african leaders i would expect them to replicate the coordination the conversation the reflection the investment into research and data before any COP. So speaking to having better coordination with civil society organization ahead of any COP to have a defining agenda, right? Before you get into the space of a, a, a COP. Where you get into the space of COP, actually you are negotiating on an agreed agenda that is well informed and trusted in data and reflection, not when you are doing brainstorming. Right. And so I think that's very important for our leaders and all of us on the continent to actually learn from that process and begin to start the work ahead of the next COP now. Because at the next COP, actually, we are going to define the structure and of, of the loss and damage. Who is going to get what? Who is not going to get what? 
start the work now and it beholds on our leaders because there are those that we have voted into power to represent and it beholds on our leaders to make to take that political will to invest into the preparation ahead of the next COP so that Africa you know can also benefit from this process. It's convenient and perhaps coincidental, the president of Ghana holds the leadership of the Climate Vulnerable Forum. And so I think there's actually a really interesting space to have conversations of both not just loss and damage, but also some of these other areas in the coming year in the run up to COP28. Um, Colombia's leader, of course, Gustavo Petro, has a very active domestic conversation going about the future of oil and gas in Colombia. They took big steps in supporting um, that call for a global fossil fuel phase out at COP27. Isa, in terms of final words, can you just reflect a little bit on what that means, what that international uh, leadership role that Colombia has now staked out means for the domestic context and how they might really ride um, greater uh, consensus around a vision for energy transition domestically in Colombia, internationally in future in the context of ILAC or, or indeed other negotiating groups in the context of COP. Antonio, international support is indeed important as a support for the domestic conversation. It was a big step. And the fact that other countries that have similar, not the same, but similarities, similar characteristics to Colombia are ready to go down a similar path with the challenges that it implies is important as an input for the domestic conversation. And that support can certainly help. I do think, however, that the essential nuts and bolts of achieving that will require deep domestic attention to bridge to bridge between the interests of those that are feeling that this will be very prejudicial and unfair for them. So the just uh, the just transition piece, the equity piece, is not just international; it's also domestic. And so, and to your linking this to your earlier question on the lessons learned from the loss and damage conversation, and in terms of building cohesion and consensus across the world on a particular idea, my answer is yes, there are lessons to be learned. The first one is cohesion can be built when there is generosity in understanding each other's situation. That can also, you know, the lack of it can completely make the loss and damage win a failure in the next two years. If that, if that conversation becomes a complete battle with, from a mentality of scarcity between vulnerable countries on who gets more of that pie, it will completely be lost and gone to waste this huge win that we got this year. The same will happen with energy transition with just energy transition packages. If we're all about who gets more in a scarcity mentality, we will never get there. But if we engage domestically and internationally from a perspective of generosity, of understanding truly and deeply listening, what is your point of view? Why are you feeling it's unfair to you, to you Ghana, to you Nigeria, to you Colombia, to you, to you Norway, to you community in a particular region that depends on coal for its revenue? Can I listen to you and understand why this feels unfair? Then we can find a solution. And that kind of mentality from a position of abundance, not scarcity of resource and from generosity, I think that will make the trick. That will be for me the main lesson learned. 
Thank you so much, Isabel. Speaking of generosity, I need to thank both Nafi and Isabel for being so generous with their time and their perspectives today. Uh, time, of course, is the only non-renewable resource, and unfortunately, our time is up. This brings us to the end of our episode for today. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do rate and subscribe to the Resource Remix on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. Share it with your friends and colleagues and look for a new episode early in 2023. Thank you all so much. Thank you.